Hello, and welcome to show number 2401 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. We're starting the new year with a pair of shows in which you get to meet the hosts. Late last year, Glenn Gordon, software fellow at Freedom Scientific and host of FS Cast podcast, interviewed Pete about his life and career as a blind scientist. We'll play excerpts from the FS Cast episode, and you'll learn how Pete became interested in science, how he and I met, about his work in imaging science at Xerox, and more. So, Glenn, take it away. On FSCast 237, I'll be joined by Pete Torpy. You probably know him as the co-host of the Eyes on Success podcast, but prior to that, he had a distinguished career as a research fellow at Xerox. Like many of you, I am a regular listener to Eyes on Success, the podcast hosted and produced by Pete Torpy and Nancy Goodman Torpy. When they've appeared on other shows talking about Eyes on Success, they've always come as a pair because their podcast was the subject. But today, Pete Torpy is the subject, and in particular, his work as a blind physicist at Xerox. In fact, he was one of only 20 research fellows who were there, and he was the youngest research fellow ever at Xerox. So, quite a list of accomplishments to his name, some of which we'll hear about in the next few minutes. Pete, welcome. Hey, Glenn, it's always good to talk to you. Long time no see, as they say. You were born with glaucoma, but no one knew right off. Is that correct? That is true. My mom would take me out into the sun and I would squint and cry. And, you know, moms have a sense for what's right with their kids. She'd take me to the doctor and the doctor would say, oh, he's just colicky. You have a colicky kid. So the glaucoma went undiagnosed for quite a while. What was the impact of your glaucoma on your growing up and how you did things? So all in all, I consider myself pretty fortunate. I actually had some vision when I was young. I was able to hold a book just several inches from my nose and read it. But in those days, they didn't mainstream people who couldn't see well. And since I couldn't see the blackboard from the front row of the classroom, I actually attended a school for the blind until the end of fifth grade. And how did you happen to be mainstreamed at that point? Because that was not standard, was it? No, it was not. But we were living in New York at the time when I was young, and there was a school for the blind, Lavelle School for the Blind in New York City. So that was easy. When we moved to Long Island, I was in sixth grade, and we said, well, let's see how public schools go. And it actually went pretty well. I found myself a little handheld monocular that was sort of like a folded up telescope that I could look at the blackboard with. And other than that, I just held my face really close to anything I was reading. Did you gravitate towards science early on or did that come later? Oh, yes. I tell people I did mathematical games and puzzles as a kid. And then when I grew up, someone paid me to do it. So it almost wasn't like work. What are your sort of memories of things like that that you did when young? I would get these books on 
puzzles and mathematical games. And my head was always into stuff like that. I was an avid reader when I was young. A lot of the Isaac Asimov, both his science fiction novels, and he did a lot of nonfiction work that was very accessible to young people in elementary school or middle school. Dealing with science. Yes. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you proved uh, to be a bit of a musical prodigy. You know, at the School for the Blind, they decided to offer free piano lessons. And I remember starting piano lessons with a blind piano teacher in second grade. And I enjoyed it so much, my folks bought a little spinet upright piano, and I continued playing. In high school, I actually attended the Manhattan School of Music on their Saturday prep program for people intending to go to music school. And that's when I learned a lot of music theory and a lot more about music and really got into playing the piano. So could you sight-read at that point? How did you learn music? Well, that was kind of a drag for me at the time. I had to look so closely at the music that I couldn't play and read the music at the same time. So I would memorize these complex classical pieces a measure at a time. By the time I got it memorized, I was sick of the music. But of course, by the time I knew the notes, that's when it was time to start making it be music. So I got a little frustrated, and I actually quit music cold turkey at the end of high school. Later in life, I learned to enjoy jazz. And there, with all my musical background, it was easy to learn a melody in my head and put together my own arrangements of tunes. And when I retired, some retired friends of mine and I got together, and we played very regularly at many of the senior facilities in town. And it was very rewarding and fun. How was doing science as someone who had limited vision? Well, it was interesting. Although I told you I could hold a book several inches from my nose and on, for a long time when I was young, I actually lost all of my vision due to some eye surgery the summer before I was to start graduate school with a fellowship. And that's when I had to relearn my Braille skills. I learned to use a cane during that time. And I said, look, I may have gone blind, but there is ways of doing this. And I spent the summer just training myself to be successful in graduate school. I'm surprised, given that you had some vision, that you managed to learn Braille originally. Well, that was interesting. When I was at the School for the Blind, they started teaching me Braille in first grade, and I did that along with the rest of the kids. The only reason I read print is because my mother taught me to read print, and I was able to read a little bit before going to first grade, and I continued reading. And how did you do things like work math? Was this all on a Perkins Brailler at that point? After about the first half year of graduate school, my eyesight cleared up enough so I could use a CCTV with the letters with lots of contrast and blown up to three, four inches high. But even then, it was kind of a struggle. But, you know, that's one of the things about being blind. Sometimes you develop some skills that are actually helpful. I learned to do a lot of math in my head and sort of see where the mathematics was going in my head. And sometimes that's a good thing. You, you can get to see an overview of the whole problem. I liken that to being a computer programmer later in life when, you know, even a sighted person, they can't see the entirety 
of a written computer code because there are many, many lines of code. But if you learn to internalize of an image of that in your head and the structure of that in your head, sometimes you can be at an advantage. When you graduated with a physics degree, what made you apply to Xerox and what made them decide to hire you? So I went into physics not knowing exactly what I wanted to do. That's almost why I majored in physics, because in physics, you learn a little bit about mechanics, you learn about quantum mechanics, you learn about heat transfer, you learn about all these different areas, electricity and magnetism. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just thought I wanted to solve problems. And so that's what got me into physics, and particularly my PhD in engineering physics, because I wanted to do some applied work. And Funny enough, I had no idea that Xerox hired physicists. I applied there because Rochester, where Xerox is located, had the Eastman School of Music. And I figured when I'm working up there, I can take classes and lessons and learn more about music. And it just so happened that Xerox was starting up an inkjet program at the time. And one of the few areas that physicists don't learn is fluid mechanics. So I was an ideal fit for their job. And why did you learn it? University of Virginia, where I went, had an engineering physics program where you took half of your courses in the physics department and half in the engineering school. And I figured, well, what are the one thing physicists didn't learn? It was fluid mechanics. And so I wound up kind of in the aerospace department taking half of my courses there. And what did you do? as your first job at Xerox? I started out at Xerox writing computer models of inkjet printers. So looking at how did the drops come out of the jets? What happened when a spherical drop hit a piece of paper? How they got misdirected through the air? How they dried out the heat management in the printheads as you were pumping energy into pumping these jets out? So all these aspects, there were so many different aspects that were fun to look at. And that's what I started doing. All in Fortran, by the way. Did you have any vision left at that point? At that time, I was still using the CCTV. What was your transition from being a magnifier user to becoming a screen reader user? You know, I tried to use my vision for as long as I could. And you'd blow up the print more and more, and I'd squint more and more and come home with headaches and stuff. But slowly, as the speech synthesizers became better, I began to let go a little bit. And then the Braille displays came along, and that was another help, too, to help me make the transition. At some point, you became a JAWS user, because otherwise we likely would not have met when we did. Well, and that was a great transition. So Xerox was moving from DOS-based systems to Windows 95, I believe, at the time. And everybody was saying, oh, my word, what's Pete going to do when Xerox moves to Windows? And I said, well, we'll figure it out. And as you know, I tried many screen readers at the time, because at the time they were all starting up. There were lots of choices. And I was just about to give up until I found JAWS. And I thought, wow, this actually works. And then I found out why. It's because it was developed by blind people. They had to use it. Did you have to begin to 
have a different model for processing information once you were just consuming it with your fingers or by ear? As a print reader most of my life, I was used to seeing the format of things, and I relied on Braille for that. And, you know, I think Braille is an important skill for people who are blind because sighted people, their first impression is what does a document look like? How is it laid out? You're less prone to make spelling errors if you can see them in Braille. I particularly use Braille for programming because back in the day when I was using Fortran, you couldn't make such nice variable names that would speak out something sensible. You were limited to seven characters. Did you find that you could gain respect from your colleagues early on, or did that take a while? Um, I think I pretty rapidly had the respect for my colleagues. You know, in fact, you talk about hiring a blind person. I never mentioned it on my resumes that I sent out. The first indication they had that I was blind is when I'd fly to an interview, and they'd say, we'll meet you at the airport, and I'd say, okay, look for the guy with the white cane. And I asked Xerox about that about a year later after I became comfortable with the situation. I said, you know, what made you hire a blind person? And my manager looked at me and said, you know, we figured if you were smart enough to get your PhD and do so well in graduate school, then that wasn't an issue. We were just concerned about your credentials. Your trajectory at Xerox seems like it was amazingly fast. To go in 1979 from being an entry-level physicist writing code to 1997, when you became the youngest of around 20 research fellows at the company. How did this happen so quickly? It is kind of incredible. It sometimes surprises me. You know, I think part of it is planning where you want to be and associating with the right people. From day one at Xerox, I looked at the people in the group, many of whom were PhDs, because that's what Xerox hired in their research department. And I said, who are the people that are doing the best work here? And I kind of associated myself with them. And I would ask, you know, what do you think is an interesting problem to work on? Or I have this problem. How would you address this? And actually, those couple of people that I associated with early in my career, I wound up uh, retiring with those people later on. But, you know, looking for the good performers, taking advice from the good performers, being open to that. I remember walking into my manager, actually it was someone else's manager at the time, and I said, you know, what makes for a successful person around here? And he basically said, make my job easy and I'll make everything well for you. And so I always had, you know, the next level up in mind when I was doing my work? What was going to please, you know, people in general? What kind of output were they looking for? When did you start supervising other people, and how did you know how to do it? So the research fellow position was an interesting one. They had parallel tracks for manager-type people and people who were more interested in science. And so generally the manager people would manage anywhere from 10, 20, 25 people or so. But, you know, scientists who are promoted to managers don't often make the best managers. But with the research fellow position, you got to mostly do your research, but occasionally you would have 
three people, maybe four, working kind of with you more collaboratively. Later, my group got to be 12 because it, we were just doing a lot of work and they didn't have a person that they trusted to do some of the image processing, so they gave it to the blind man. But uh, most of my interactions were collaborative, and I enjoyed getting along with people. How did you deal with image processing output when you perhaps were not the one who could do the fine grain analysis of whether or not things were on the right path? So this was another interesting thing. I talked before about sometimes you develop skills or bring something to a team as a blind person that can be an advantage. And I believe being blind in my group was an advantage. Scientists often have a hard time talking and interacting with each other. They'd rather interact with a computer in general. But I understood the fundamentals of what was going on in image processing, where the bits should be. I understood all the scientific terms. And when it came to looking at prints, everybody sees something different in a print. Some person may say, oh, this looks, you know, too sharp to me, it's too enhanced, this color is wrong. And for me, everybody in the team had to verbalize what they were thinking. And I think it enhanced communication among the whole team, and we came up with a better result because of it. How much of your success was sort of coordinating the output from the team and how much of it was really you yourself coming up with innovative concepts? What really led to me becoming a research fellow was this process and technique I put together and developed for creating what they called simulated prints. So these are prints that I generated that were representative of actual output you would see from printers that didn't exist yet. When you're designing a new printer, you have to think about the concept and what's it going to look like and what are going to be the specifications. So you put in a lot of design time and then you actually have to make a prototype in order to test the printer. Well, that can take a year because you're in the machine shop and you got to put these parts together and they don't work, et cetera, et cetera. It's a long process. And then you start testing the printer and making prints to see what they look like. So I put together a combination of software that I wrote and hardware that I found out about that was able to take an image in, go through my software, and the software would say, okay, this printer heats up this way, and the jets are misdirected like this way, and they're moving this fast, et cetera, et cetera. And the end analysis was I could hand someone a print that looked like it came off a printer that didn't exist. So this saved a tremendous amount of time and money. So I'd go to these conferences and talk about inkjet printers, and I could show them all these simulated prints, pretending they came from a real printer. But we couldn't speak about the fact that all of my prints were simulated. So that's what got me to be a research fellow. Did you and Nancy meet at Xerox? We did. So I came in 1979, and Nancy, who is the same age as me, came to Xerox in 1982 after doing a year and a half postdoc in Germany. And we met ostensibly because, well, there weren't many women in f physics, for sure. She was like maybe one of two or three 
if that many, out of a couple hundred research scientists who were women at the time. But we had both independently in graduate school picked up contra dancing, which is sort of like square dancing, except it's done in lines. And I had known that from my previous contra dancing experience around the country at festivals before that someone told me, hey, there's this lady from Chicago coming to Rochester who's a contra dancer. You ought to look her up when she comes to town. And I did. And it turned out we lived within a couple of blocks of each other. We were in the same carpool. And our managers reported the same people. So one way or another, we were going to meet. So she came in 82. And we were friends until January of the next year and married by July. Pretty fast. Pretty fast. I wouldn't recommend that to our kids, but we've been married over 40 years now, so. You guys retired really young. I'm thinking mid-50s. That's, that's a long time in retirement. Did you have any doubts that you could occupy your time? When we took the package that Xerox offered, it turned out a lot of our colleagues did. So the people we thought we'd miss at work turned out to be our playmates. And we took it a little bit on faith that we'd find stuff. We don't do the same things that we did when we first retired nearly 20 years ago. But there's always something new to do, some, always some new way to contribute if you keep your mind open. I mean, look at our Eyes on Success podcast, for example. We never envisioned that when we retired, but somehow that all happened. So how did that come to be? We volunteered to do a fun drive for our local NPR affiliate, WXXIAM, and we decided to go in and man the telephones. Nancy brought in her laptop, and there I was with her laptop and JAWS and a telephone, and everybody came in. How's this blind guy doing this? And they, they were all like amazed. They wanted to see my system. And then the person who was the manager of the FM station, she was actually running the radio reading service and said to me, you know, you seem to know a lot about computers. We have a blind person doing the board in the radio reading service, and we're getting a new version of the software for the whole station, and his software will not work with that. Do you think you could help him? And I wound up writing some JAWS scripts for him that enabled him to access this new software, and the day they made the transition to him using the screen reader JAWS with the new version of the program, the entire station updated. So it was one person sort of holding back that whole flood wall. But then how did that lead to your doing the show? Oh, well, she came to us later on and she says, you know, you guys both speak pretty well. Pete seems to know a lot about technology and being blind. How about if you guys do a weekly program for us? So we started doing in their studios uh, a weekly thing. We'd come in, she'd record us, she'd edit us. And after about a year of that, we decided, you know, it's so easy to do some of this at home without all the restrictions, and we can put up our own website, and, you know, they didn't want us making the podcast ourselves, and they weren't doing it successfully, posting podcasts regularly, so we just decided to do it ourselves. It really can be done from home these days with not too much investment. I'm thinking this was 2011. I think it was. Yeah, we've been doing this show for, I think we're in our 13th year now. Wow. And you guys stay interested. 
we never thought we'd had enough material for more than half a dozen or a dozen shows. But it turns out the more you get into it, you find out all these other interesting things that are going on, interesting people to talk to. And these days, now that we've been around so long, people contact us. Hey, can we be on your show? I'm publishing a book or I'm running this marathon or something. So it makes it a lot easier. Earlier in the interview, we sort of left you playing music with a band, but we didn't talk about the tech that you used for preparing the arrangements. How did that all get going? In the early days, Nancy used to plunk out the melody to tunes into a tape recorder. Eventually, however, I learned of Band in a Box, a program that can create backing tracks, and it was a way of learning jazz music for me because it played the chords and displayed the chords on the screen. The only problem was it wasn't accessible. So that's when I said, okay, this is why JAWS is so powerful. You can write your own scripts. And I wrote some scripts that made Band in a Box accessible. And I was able to learn my new jazz tunes that way. And then I figured as long as I'm finding use for these scripts. I just make them available for other people. So I put them up on my website. Is there anything else that has been significant in your life that we have not talked about? We talked about working hard at one's career. And I think it's also important to have a holistic balance of one's life, career-wise, home life, etc. And so I'm very pleased that in addition to having a very rewarding career, I have a very great marriage with my wife, Nancy. We have two wonderful kids, and we managed to spend plenty of time with those kids. You know, when we were both working hard, there's a lot to juggle when there's two professionals with full-time commitments. And we would often hire nannies for the kids to take care of them during the day when we weren't there and then spend as much time as we could with them in the evenings and, and weekends. And, you know, we tried to limit our work hours to 40 hours a week. I mean, sometimes as a professional, you have to do more. But we always kind of made that trade off and said home life is important, too. You know, Nancy was offered several promotions, particularly as a woman. They wanted her to go up the ladder. And at some point she said, no, this just isn't for me. And I really admire her for doing that. That's a hard decision. Well, thank you, Pete. This was this was good. I can't believe that I've known you since 1996, 1997, and that you've never been on FSCast, both before or during my tenure. So thank you very much. Well, it certainly is a pleasure, and it was good being friends with you. And I'm glad you did what you did to get JAWS running very effectively for people like myself around the world. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Well, thanks again, Glenn, for having me on the FSCast podcast, and thanks for doing a great interview. If people want to find the FSCast podcast for themselves, they can go to the Freedom Scientific website at freedomscientific.com, and there's a link to FSCast. And if people want to get in touch with us or have any questions, they can send an email to host at eyesonsuccess.net. And of course, we'll have those links in the show notes associated with this episode, which is episode 2401 at our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net.
That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll have the second of this two-part series in which you get to meet the other host, me, Glenn Gordon, software fellow at Freedom Scientific and host of the FS Cast podcast, did us the favor of interviewing me, having already interviewed Pete. And you'll get to learn how I became interested in science, my version of how I met Pete, my education and career as a female scientist in a male-dominated profession, and more. And Glenn did a great job on that interview also, so we hope you'll join us for that episode. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman-Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.